0: Hello, I'm Jimmy Bowens and you're listening to the episodes podcast where we interview educators from around the world and discuss innovation in education, education technology and share stories from the world of teaching and learning in a digital age. On today's show, I interview Amanda Bickerstaff, CEO of Pivot Professional Learning. Pivot is a data driven research company focused on helping teachers measure their impact on learning using evidence. Amanda has recently teamed up with EP to run a survey to over 3,500 teachers across Australia and New Zealand to investigate the impact COVID-19 is having on teaching and learning, particularly around teacher concerns regarding remote teaching. We discuss the survey results in detail and talk about the changes occurring in education due to the pandemic and the place of online learning tools. At a time when we are all re-evaluating our education systems and reflecting on how and when learning takes place, there is a lot of thought-provoking information covered in this conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Without further ado, I give you Amanda Bickerstaff. Hi, Amanda. Thank you so much for taking time to join me today. How are you getting on in these unusual circumstances?
1: It's definitely unusual. Um, I miss the people that I work with. I don't miss having to wear like normal clothes. Um, but yeah, we're really busy here. It's been a, um, a great month of really deep research just coming out on the other end of that so i think it's it's nice today to be able to talk to you and take a little bit of a breath and kind of reflect on what we've been doing
0: that's wonderful i i think like myself those of us in an industry which has a lot of purpose during a time like this time, for me anyway, has gone quite quickly. And I'm sure it's the same for you, seeing as, as all of the, the wonderful things you've been doing. Um, so I guess that's a, that's a positive in, in, in some sense. Before we get started, I would love to hear a little bit more about who you are, <laughs> how you've come to be the person you are. Would you mind just for our listeners to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about, um, about who you are?
1: Sure. Well, um, my name is Amanda. I'm originally from the US. I started my career as a teacher. I taught high school biology in the Bronx. And um, during that time, I really learned a lot about education and equity and myself. And so I've been on a kind of interesting journey. I didn't finish my PhD, much to my grandmother's chagrin, but I had a lot of different jobs in education and research and then started working in ed tech. So I started working in ed tech in New York City like seven years ago, around online professional learning for teachers. And through that process, I've had a real opportunity to kind of learn what works well, like in online, how to how to support organizations as they grow and change. And then I had this opportunity to come to Australia. So I uh, went to a EdTech meetup at the Australian consulate um, with my former company, and I met the co-founder of Pivot. And uh, during that 10-minute conversation, we really connected. And when she came back to Australia, she offered me a position to start thinking through how we could expand in the U.S. Well, three months later, I it meant not the U.S. but me actually moving to Australia and taking the CEO position.
0: Wow. I have lots to talk to you in regard to Pivot and um, that company, but if you don't mind, I'd like to just dive a little bit deeper into some of the things you said about your background. And one of them is, and this is something I ask a lot of the educators that we talk to who transition from teaching into something else. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the the tail end of your teaching career? And you mentioned you learned a lot about equity, and I'm wondering if that has something to do with your your answer you're gonna give, but what was that transition like and how did it come about? Um, leaving the profession of teaching?
1: Well, it's a a good question. So in the US, we have alternative routes certification teachers. So meaning that you can become a teacher without having done teaching or having training, and then you do like a a graduate program at the same time. So I had just graduated college. I was in college in, in Georgia at Emory and moved up to New York City to become a teacher. And my first Day in the classroom was in a summer school, and then I uh, went to a school that would be considered a high need school. It was about ninety percent free or reduced lunch, which is the kind of poverty level um, school in the U.S. And we had, you know, seventy percent of students were English language learners, and about thirty five percent were students with um, some recorded disability. And so it, it was—it's it, a very specific and unique type of challenge to support students that, you know, basic needs are not being met on a day-to-day basis. And I was also teaching high school biology. And if you're in the, uh, in New York City or New York, that is the first like kind of major certification test that you take when you get secondary school. So it was, you know, it's, it's kind of a unique challenge, right? And I'm, I'm trying to impart, uh, you know, some pretty heavy stuff, right? Like biology is not easy, easy to teach anywhere. Um, And so I, you know, I really struggled my first year to kind of find how to actually become a teacher and to get over and to to connect with students and to, to get to a place where learning happened. And I, I, I was, you know, not that successful, but luckily you keep trying, you build trust, you get better. And by the second year, I, you know, I started to see some results and, you know, we're getting some, some learning in and, and then by my third year, you know, it was it was a transition transition point for me because I'd actually said in my interview that I had planned to do two to three years, and the reason being is I, I have a, a health problem that's an autoimmune disease, and I just wanted to be like, you know, how much stress I was putting on myself, which um, is probably too much information for people. But you know, it's something that my you know was important for me then.
0: Of course, it's it's a it's a defining a defining aspect. Thank you for sharing yeah. that.
1: But you give it everything, right? Like I, I worked nonstop. I, you know, it wasn't just a teacher. I did community service program that I started with my, my kids. We did, I was the coordinator of student affairs. I launched an AP bio course, you know, like I, I did it all, right? And so when it came time to kind of finish that third year, um, it also was a good time for me because I think I knew after this learning that I really wanted to impact how education worked more. And the work that teachers do is, is the day-to-day most important thing. I want to make that clear. But there are opportunities. And I think for me specifically, the way that I approach the world and I problem solve and I work is that, you know, I just thought that I could potentially have a bigger impact if I was supporting the structures or the the places in which people could, could support students better. So that's really why it was probably the right thing to do to move out. I have to say, though, whenever I get to teach, meaning I've had opportunities to go back to classrooms. I've had opportunities, what I consider to be a form of teaching doing professional learning. Like those still are my favorite parts, that connecting and that ability to to have that two-way conversation that that learning is, is, is just something I still really enjoy. It's just not my primary anymore.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. Thank you. I guess there are a great number of effective classroom teachers that because of their efficacy have gone through higher echelons of the education system into administrative roles, into roles where they get to have a say in policy, perhaps, or working in systems. So I could fully understand your thought process there. You felt like, well, I have a strength in systems and therefore I could put my energy into, into use there. I think there's a lot of people probably listening to this that are in the same position. Uh, makes perfect sense. So, thank you for sharing that that background. In terms of Pivot, uh, you, you gave us a brief introduction to how you kind of you you met the co-founder in Australia, but can you expand on what Pivot is? And I'm particularly interested to hear the background of the name Pivot and tell us a little bit about the mission statement of Pivot and and uh, anything at all, really.
1: Sure. Um, so, Pivot was founded just over six years ago by three women. um, One teacher, she was still in the classroom, and two that had worked in uh, the ministry and government. And so they were coming from a very unique perspective of, it was the intersection of teaching and policy. There was this recognition that Australia had an opportunity to lean into the international research a little bit more on what best practice was. And so there was a a recent study by, um, it was called the MET study, around teaching effectiveness that had shown that students were able to really accurately provide feedback to teachers and to systems on what effective teaching was. So they came together and had this idea, well, what we can do is we can kind of activate student voice for teachers and systems by giving students an opportunity to provide anonymous feedback on teaching. And so there are a lot of different ways to get feedback. And But the thing that is really unique about Pivot is that it's tied directly to teaching standards. It's meant to be really instructive to a teacher or school about how students are experiencing everything, from assessment to engagement to the ability to connect. And so, it really gives a, a path forward for like professional learning and for where a strategic plan should go, taking into account students' experiences. So the it grew. So it's you know it started with you know ten schools into. 50 into now we're, we last year, we're just in about 600. Wow. Yeah. Very exciting. And the idea of, of, um, pivot is like the name, which is funny. Cause it's ruined that name, that word for me forever. Whenever I say it, I feel like
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: it's, um, and it's such a great word. Um, it is, but the idea of pivoting and uh, to, to pivot is to make a small move, right? To make an adjustment yeah, based on some kind of stimuli. Um, which is kind of probably too, too. I'm going back to my biology roots, using stimuli. But um, <laughs> the idea here is that we want to provide the evidence that allows schools and teachers and systems to to make those adjustments based on evidence. And so it, it's interesting. We, we've done some research projects specifically around how you know student perception uh, data can actually inform practice for like communities of practice. You know how do students perceive different types of math? Teachers based on all kinds of demographics. We've done that before, but this is the first time with this research project we just did where we've gone really big into looking at a, a big evidence base of, of what teachers are experiencing. But it kind of it's it's the same type of focus and of what we're doing, which is this idea of providing evidence to lead to actionable results.
0: Yeah. I have to mention this because um I think as a as a former teacher myself and for all the teachers listening, nothing terrifies teachers more than the thought of aggregated student feedback being used <laughs> to judge their efficacy and what I liked about what you said is that it's linked to and aligned to standards teaching standards, and that's um you know perfectly reasonable and i I know a little bit more about about pivot now so. I'm, I'm more being the devil's advocate here for, for listeners who don't. Can you explain a little bit about the experience that teachers have had prior to the, the latest research or, uh, based on COVID-19 experience, but based on the student-centered research and surveys, what, what is the experience like for a teacher in a school where that, surveys, that survey is done?
1: That's a really good question. And it's also, you know, this idea that feedback can be pretty confronting as, a, as an adult in any way, to getting feedback is, is quite difficult. And so what we do see is that um, it can be quite, quite scary. But what we find is that because it's anonymous and it's tied to teaching standards, it isn't a personal attack. If anything, it's meant to give you a guide to what to do next. We use a strength-based approach, which means we really focus on the top three um, questions or areas. And we look at the top three areas of, of, of growth and then also show what's changed the most over time. No teacher can change everything in a moment. What we're looking to do is, is have students help direct where you put your energy as, in as a teacher. And so what we find is that usually the way we do this is that it starts as a trial. And it's something that is, um, you know, done by a core group of teachers and leaders and they experience it. and. First of all, they find out one thing is that students are a lot less negative than they assume, that they learn something new about themselves. About 75% of teachers learn something new about themselves. And then about two thirds actually make a change to their practice based on the feedback. Wow. So it's big, right? And, and then what you find is then you go to the this, this staff room and we suggest first of all, it's never tied to accountability, it's only anonymous. So that it's always meant to be formative. And if the only reason you would ever see someone's results is if they handed them to you physically or opened up their, their, their computer to show you. And we do see that that happens. About half of uh, people actually share their results. It, but then when you go to that staff room and you say, okay, this is what we did. These are my results. what I learned. What we find is that that opt-in process tends to be quite high. And we've had schools that have been working with us for four years, which is if, you know, you're at EP that's a lifetime um, yeah, Of course. A, a platform and like ours. So we always are striving to do, to do better. And so we've worked to, you know, always listen to our clients and our, our teachers. We started to add features that are for that are much more autonomous. So we have something called a pulse check where a teacher can go out and ask their own questions, but we also provide them a bank of questions that are well-written and, you know, so that they can start from a base so that they know what they're going to get Um, we have lots of resources that are meant to be like three things you can do tomorrow, the places in which you can just kind of see what happens next. And we do that because we want this to be something that a teacher finds value in. And that hopefully what ends up happening is they see and they learn something and they go talk to their students. Because this is the underlying principle. Teachers and students use different language. They have different ways of understanding the world. That this is a great place to go back and say, hey, Jimmy. You know, I saw these results, and I really like. I found this really interesting. What did you mean by this? What does this look like in the classroom? How can we work on it together? And what we see is those conversations can have the most rich impact. And we've even heard, and like, that, like, this is the best conversation I had all year. And those are the reasons why I think that we keep doing what we do.
0: That's wonderful. And um, I guess to sum to sum up and to quell some of the fears that we that that kind of uh, stemmed from that question I asked. As you said, there's a principle here at play, and that is it's it's for the benefit of the students overall. And educators, I think, would all agree on that as the foundational principle that we work on is to um, improve outcomes for students. I love also the the last part where you talked about how it creates opportunities for meaningful communication because there's a lot of inherent value in that of itself in terms of practicing meaningful communication based on data with students so that they can see how systems can change, how uh, behavior can change through clear communication using data. And I think that's that's something that is a big part of the potential paradigm shift we're going to talk about uh, in a few minutes. Let's move on to the most recent survey, which, as you alluded to, shifted to, to the teachers a little bit more. Um, obviously we're in extraordinary circumstances. This is, and I love the quote in the white paper where a teacher said it is a giant experiment. Um, I think that's a great way to look at it. It's a good analogy. And if we if we think about it that way, we might start to look for the positive opportunities as well as you know seeing the obvious negatives. But um, can you talk a little bit how the, sur- the most recent survey on COVID-19 mm-hmm. And distance learning, how it was devised, and what the what the purpose was, and then we'll we'll get into some of the findings, if you don't mind.
1: So it was it's pretty interesting. So we've been partnering with EP over the last couple months, specifically around thinking about how our you know how student feedback in perception data can actually inform professional learning. Because I know that EP is really focused on starting to think through how to support teachers as well. Yeah. We, we've had a really great time. We've, we've been able to, to meet with Alex, your CEO, and James, your head of content and product, a couple of times. And we had this conversation about, with COVID-19 happening and, and you all providing your services for free, back in early March, the school is not in this region that had already moved. We said, well, why don't we just partner around providing some resources we created. We created about 20 resources that are just like one-pagers about like creating connections with students you know, remote learning, even remote like practices of collaboration between teachers. Yeah. And then also we had our pulse checker, which I just mentioned. So we what we did is we offered that together and it's been really great. We, we were able to provide free access to a, a good chunk of, of people that came through EP. And so we just started, you know, keeping that conversation going and... Your CEO, Alex, called and said, you know, we had this opportunity to get some feedback on how our platform's being used. And I'd love to like look at how what technologies are being used and how they rated. And we had that conversation. And I'm a former academic researcher. And I don't think you can throw that to someone that used to do research without them sitting down for four hours to create something. And so what I did is I sat down on a Sunday. And uh just at the beginning of April, which seems forever ago, and I created this survey that was significantly more robust, but really had that technology as as a primary focus. And work with my team and we went back and forth and we're like, we know if we're gonna do this, why don't we do it? And so we created this monster and we'll call it a monster. So anyone that did it out there, thank you so much for completing it. Everyone completed between 24 and 36 items. And I think that to be honest, I think your EP people were like, is anybody gonna do this? And I think in my mind I was like, you know, is anybody going to have time? And what we did is we launched it on the Thursday before Good Friday. And it was kind of a crazy day. And I was at, I was at an office social distancing promise and I walked back to my apartment and we had launched it. And by the time I got back to my apartment, about 35 minutes later, we had 750 responses.
0: That's incredible.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was, it was overwhelming and it was such an indication of teachers wanting to provide feedback, almost almost everyone completed it, which was really great. So we had 85% completing the full survey. And we ended up with, we closed it to be able to start the analysis because of how important of time it was. But we closed it in less than four days. We could have probably gotten more feedback, but we wanted to kind of have this be a snapshot. It was fascinating. I have to be honest, I read every single qualitative comment and there are over a thousand. Oh, wow. Yes, because I, I don't know what that says about me, but it really was something where This is the first time that I've seen within an Australian context of kind of doing this type of original research. And it's also probably one of its kind across the world. Yes. Because it provides a deep dive into a specific moment and asks teachers to give really deep feedback on what this experience is.
0: I think it's important, just to jump in there for a second, that we really acknowledge that point, that this is a snapshot at a particular time of collective trauma in the midst of huge logistical challenges for educators. So you're capturing a lot of honest in the moment reactions. And I really want to reiterate that, that this is a one of its kind. And that's why it's so powerful, I feel.
1: I agree completely. And I think that's why, at least for me, I spent some time on those those qualitative comments, right? We had one question at the end of the main survey that said, do we miss anything? And we left it open like that, right? Because we wanted to kind of... You know, even though you put down, you know, forty-four questions, there's a ton of stuff we could have asked. Yeah, it was fascinating because I think that that's what's come away with me, and it's one of the reasons why every time we do present this research, we use teacher voices and the responses, right? Like, try to use quotes as much as possible. Yeah, what I saw, you know, what we saw from that data is that there's just this underlying commitment to students that it wasn't an opportunity to complain. If anything, it's an opportunity to identify the biggest areas of concerns, or, you know, what we don't talk about a lot is, is most teachers are caregivers. So they're, it's an incredibly complex time. Mm. They have their own young children and then they're responsible, you know, anywhere from 30 to a hundred students at the same time.
0: Yeah. There is an aspect of teaching that I, it almost feels taboo to say it, but I think this period allows it. And that is that teachers are community parents. We have a responsibility for everybody's children.
1: Well, yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting way to look at teaching, right? Because your kids are with their teachers, sometimes more than they're with you. They are learning the social aspects of community building and they're building relationships. And all of these things are, are, are really important. what we saw in, this, in the data is just how school is more than just learning and outcomes, yeah. which is something that's easy to talk about. You know, we have the PISA results come out or talk about NAPLAN or ATAR, you know, like these things happen and they're important. Like learning outcomes are incredibly important. What we have to also take into account is that there is a social aspect of schooling that is incredibly important. It's underlying and it's implicit. Mm-hmm. And to move students to distance education in a full sweep at the same time with little preparation, is going to cause that disruption. That's going to be very real. We've made sure to talk to distance educators that, that do this really well. They talk to students all the time. They use they use a lot less technology than we've been talking about, and they're able to create a lot of connection. But that number is staggeringly small, and the class sizes are smaller, and it's a deliberate way to, to connect. Right? Yeah. And what we've done is that with this shift, there there is no way to replicate right now. And I'm talking to an ed tech platform, but there's no way to replicate right now the classroom online. Yeah.
0: It clearly indicates, I mean, I say clearly, I, I feel quite confident in using that word, that the social emotional link to progress, proficiency, and academic performance is very strong. And this experience, it is evidence of that that when we when we take the humanity out of teaching and learning, or we reduce it, it has a great effect on uh, efficacy. And I, I love that you you had that question open, like, what do you miss? I think that's uh, that's a very telling part of this research, <laughs> it's giving giving people an opportunity to express themselves a little bit more freely. And perhaps separate from data and separate from more measurable aspects of teaching and learning, it will give us greater insight and greater evidence to kind of pursue avenues that are less tangible. So thanks for including that in, in the research. So can we, if you don't mind, and hopefully if you have time to go through some of the, some of the findings that you are, are willing to kind of elaborate on a little bit and that you found really insightful and powerful for, for looking ahead?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, so the kind of top line highlights are that one of the most divisive questions on the survey was, do you think online teaching is as effective as the physical classroom? And you don't often see a question that it has, you know, a neutral that everyone's on one side or the other. And that's what we saw. We had less than 10% of people in a neutral position. It was pretty evenly split, with a slightly higher, pers- like h- higher percentage of people believing that they were confident that online teaching could be as effective. And we're not talking about more effective; we're saying as effective. So that's number one. I think there's a real question, and this goes to equity. This goes to different types of schools. This goes to different types of teachers. That online learning is 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 an effective replacement. Because in this case, it is a replacement for most students. It's not a what we've seen it before, which is a um, enhancement or a a specific case, if that makes sense.
0: Yes, Um, it does.
1: The second thing that we saw is that 80% of teachers believe that students will need extra instructional support when they go back to the classroom. And this is pretty pretty even across all respondents of types. And what this means to us is that there is this recognition that this is disrupted learning in a meaningful way for most students.
0: Can I ask if there was uh, more information that would help us elaborate on the term instructional support. What, what Did responders kind of give specifics or examples or unpack that term any further That that might give us some more confidence in what instructional support might mean?
1: Yeah, so it was everything from the ability of them to be able to assess students, to be able to engage students in learning, it came up quite a bit that some students didn't even have access to technology at all or internet. In one In one perspective, someone said that they're not able to reach 40 to 60% of their students because of um, the access to internet, reliable internet. Yeah. That one piece of just equity. Students that were younger, primary students, their ability to to replicate the physical classroom is very difficult. Having a primary classroom means lots of different types of learning. And lots of very directed, supported learning. And that's not really happening in a lot of schools. Um, There will be uh, issues around uh, older students kind of not engaging or maybe, you know, kind of phoning it in or online assessments being easy to gain. Um, That this is, there's like all kinds of different, like I would say that instructional support means that I don't think there's one answer to what's been what's happened, but there are like 19 (laughs) different contributing ways that learning has been disrupted, and so it's it's really interesting. But it makes sense, though, right? Of course. There, but I want to say that there are there are pockets, right, of people that are innovating that students are doing so well with self direction that they are thriving, Um, and so we can't discount that. But I think that that is not the the case of, of disruption is quite large and it is multitudinous.
0: The term self-direction, I think, is is really important here. And if I can use that as a segue, because in some of the you had some amazing webcasts um, recently where you had really influential educators come in and talk about this these results and talk about the research and the findings and give their opinions and experiences. And that was a term I heard uh, mentioned a few times from representatives, principal representatives and from classroom teachers and from your student expert was the need for more support to be self-directed. Right. And that the... This is something where suddenly, and going back to that analogy of the experiment, suddenly we needed students to be self-directed.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Immediately, overnight. Like self-ambulation is the name of the game right now. And it, it's fascinating. As someone that's been in ed tech in some way, shape, or form for the last 15 years, I do think that we're, we've never really gotten a handle on that. For someone to be really good online they need to be able to, to regulate their work, direct it to, to have staying power. Like even all the Zooms, right? Like we have to be willing to like, do, okay, we're gonna open it again. We're gonna have these conversations. I'm gonna keep, keep moving ahead. Like it, it is, it's something that's happening across from adults to kids. But then when we look at what we've created to, to support online learning, it still requires a kid to get online, remember a password or have it saved, know what to do next, do it, and then move to that next thing. And that is an incredible difference in a classroom where kids literally sit in the same place. I mean, when I taught, I moved, not the students. Right? It's a very, very big difference that is not really. It was. It, it's not supported by what we've been how we teach students, and it's not supported how we've created edtech.
0: I would love to explore this idea more because in in terms of how analogous it is to the amount of people that have also had to become proficient at working from home as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's a similar situation. We, if you are a person in uh, a career where you haven't had to get up and go through your tasks at home with a certain amount of independence and self-direction, then you will have experienced a similar thing that students are experiencing. And these are soft skills and they're higher cognitive skills in some sense as well, where we, we, we definitely can see now that there's, there's needs beyond what we offer in our curricula to make sure that, that the self-direction is, is there for when we need it, <laughs> I guess.
1: Absolutely. And it's fascinating though, because if you look at, you can look at it from two points of view, right? That worker that's never worked remotely, Needs to self-direct, but then the organization has to make sure that there is a pathway to self-direct. Yeah, of course. But if gets worked, and you were just in meetings nonstop, and your outputs were mostly collaborative, or and then you move completely to online, and, to, and then there's no way to actually do that well, then that's on the organization as well. So it's really interesting because it's 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 yes. the to be successful, and I think that this is incredibly important. Is that agreed that that that, you know it's putting a lot of pressure on the students but it also is just really highlighting how the structural pieces do not provide for that transition
0: yeah agreed agreed it is it is multiple parts of the infrastructure needing to to work in harmony as well as having students equipped to to respond so um that's, I mean, that's just the, the as you said, one of the top line findings. What, what else came out of this survey that you thought was really interesting and could help us when we move towards a transition back to classroom?
1: Well, you know, I think that what is is interesting is, and we talked about this before as well, which is this idea of how important the social aspects of schooling were. So I, I found this my most fascinating. This is this is the thing that, that resonated with me the most. I think I was. Not um, particularly surprised by a lot, although it was really good to see, if that makes sense. Um, I think that anecdote only gets us so far. And, you know, having things that are statistically significant and have, it has weight. It has, you know, it, it works. Um, it can lead to a change and policy change. But what I found really interesting is that we asked a question of what teachers were most concerned about for their students. And it included everything from learning, access to basic needs, access to technology, support from a parent, social isolation, and, and student well-being. And what we found is that the number one was across both Australia and New Zealand was that social isolation piece. And then for Australian teachers, the next down was student well-being. And for uh, New Zealand teachers, it was that instructional but learning loss, but it was pretty, it was pretty close. The third for both were the opposites, if that makes sense. Right, the yeah. The top three were the same. And I found that really interesting because that social isolation that student well-being were incredibly important for teachers and their concerns for students. Two of the top three were about the social aspects, not the learning aspects, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. looked so at the flip side, which is what are teachers most concerned about with their own practice, and included the same kind of mix of instructional effectiveness Work-life balance um, and their social disconnection from students. They said, number one, their social disconnection with students.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating.
1: And you know, to me, that's so—it's so big, right? That teachers work really hard to build relationships in term one. Yes. And it's almost not enough time. Like in some cases, this was disrupted in the middle of term one, right? And. I think that that those relationships, like you work really hard on them and they really matter They're the reasons why you get up and you're, if you're a primary teacher, you know, sometimes you, you might be blowing noses or you know, like, yeah. it be crazy. You, you, do, you know, you have all the things that you do as a teacher, all the work that you put in, but it's for those, those connections and that this kids that you impact positively. Right. And so that is a really big concern for, for teachers that that has been disrupted in a meaningful way.
0: Yeah, it just it goes to show again that so much of um, student progress is based on on those positive relationships they have with their teachers. And I guess, as you said, the uh, the teachers worrying about their efficacy, that shows as well how much they know and they experience that once the relationships are good and productive with their students, that they're able to do their jobs really well. And just suddenly, you know, that dislocation, it's, it's incredible, but not that surprising. You know, um, they, they feel like they lose that, that control once they, once they don't have access to the students in an interpersonal way. One of the interesting things as well, the comments that teachers made about having high quality education platforms. What did you take high quality to mean by what you read in their responses?
1: Well, yeah, so we we asked teachers what was most important for quality online education or most critical, we use the term critical. Number one was a high-quality technology platform, and then the next were resources for remote teaching. And what was interesting is we also kind of took and said, what is your primary technology? What, What technology do you use? What's your primary technology? And then rate that technology based on things like ease of use ability to assess students, student engagement, et cetera, and their confidence to use it. And so what we found was pretty interesting is that uh, schools are using multiple technologies. They're using on average between two and five. We had some schools using 10, Wow! Um, which is impressive and scary yeah. at the same time. Very scary. Um, and that if you looked at the data, there was not one primary technology that was just great at everything that was a really big takeaway is that when you think about technologies, they all have different uses, right? Yeah. Features. They have different, you have to learn how to use them. They have different passwords. They have different, like a feature can be updated. Like, you know, they're, they're constantly changing, right? You know, that at EP, you guys are always trying to make it better. And we're trying to, to launch and and cobble together a a patchwork of, um, of different technologies to replicate that that, that classroom environment. It's interesting because there's a recognition it is most important, but there's also a recognition that there's not a one size fits all solution. There were ones though that were that kind of rise above and one is that organizations like EP or others that have digital curriculum tend to rate the highest. And I think from my perspective, the ability for a teacher to focus on the teaching piece and the enhancement, like the, that, that's something that can enhance teaching um, has been quite positive because also when you think about it, you know, to have to build curriculum and content means a lot of preparation time. Mm. That is um, an additional add. And so th- I thought that was really interesting that that digital curriculum was really important. Yeah. And as someone that has made a lot of content in my life, that's been a lot of my jobs, I know how hard it is to do well. And so I, I can recognize that. The second thing I thought was really interesting is that it was seen that like a collaboration tool like a like the what we're doing right now was incredibly important, but also the least highly rated if it was the primary. If you were just using a collaboration tool like a Zoom or Webex or skype that even though it's important, it was it was rated most consistently low, if that makes sense. Because I think it's just, it's just so unstructured and it's not a, a tool design designed for education.
0: And one of the interesting things as well was we, we're obviously, we're in the age of digital overwhelm, I think. Um, there, there's just, you know, you, you mentioned some schools had 10. I can't imagine being a teacher trying to juggle that amount of tools day to day. Right. You know, what were some of the, the the comments that were made around the differences between them? You mentioned content being important and you thought that was, you know, you that's a, a really positive, but when we when we think about LMS, you know, S C T, V L E and V L E C, which was a new one for me when I looked at the would you would you mind just for the benefit of our listeners explaining some of the major differences and expanding what you just said there?
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, what's interesting is that some of the deeper meta analysis that we did was to take the different technologies because there are about 140 that were identified and over 100 were used as primaries. So that's really interesting. New Zealand, like the majority of their um, t- like primary technology is what we would call a virtual learning environment, a VLE. That's going to be what I would say content agnostic, meaning that it's whatever content you have. In Australia, it's much more fragmented. There are about six in the top 65%. So it's very wide. We set it into four groups, a student management system slash content management system. So something like a compass, if you're in Australia, a collaboration tool, like something like Skype, WebEx, or Zoom, a virtual learning environment, like Google Classroom or Microsoft Teams, and then a virtual learning environment with content, like an education perfect, a style, or others. And so... What we found is that the difference between those is that a student management system or a content management system is going to be one in which it has mostly asynchronous tools, and it does not have content. It's usually a communication tool. It's a, a way to keep track of things, right? Yes. Students are. Yeah. The collaboration tool is a way to, to do what we're doing right now. The virtual learning environments are going to include both asynchronous and synchronous types of communication. And they have many more kind of tools for replicating a classroom environment. Teams has ways to collaborate. So does Google Classroom, etc. And then a, a virtual learning environment with content is going to be like, it has that asynchronous and synchronous, but it also has that digital content. Right. Like you can do a math exercise, right? That's already built for you, a lesson. And that's how we separated them. And then what we did is we looked into each one of those and to see how they kind of rated across those, those pieces. and. What's funny is that, you know, you said you've never seen the BLEC. The strength of the literature on this, if for my academic nerds out there, like the strength of like the research is is pretty, pretty low. There's no commonalities around naming or how these systems are researched. We used to call them, we used to call a lot of them learning management systems, like a blackboard is yeah. a learning management system, right? But now they don't want to be a learning management system. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: it's, it's changed so much that we kind of had to do a little bit of a, you know, something new, because it's kind of an indication of how important this type of research is, because we're not really looking at the efficacy, we're not really looking at how things are being used. And we never had the opportunity because even schools that are at distance education, like I said, they actually use less technology, not more.
0: Yeah, you kind of um, ran with what my follow up to this was already. And that is the importance of defining the purpose of each tool and knowing the differences. I think that's. It, it feels as if a lot of educational technology has been around for a long time, yet it still feels like it's an unexplored aspect of our education systems in general. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, and please feel free to, be, to give your personal opinion on this, but because a lot of these tools and resources are being developed by the private sector, which means they can be accelerated and they can be funded and they, you get a lot of innovation that way. However, what would you suggest we should start to consider as a set of values by which these educational tools and technologies are being offered? How can we hold uh, each other accountable? How can we be sure that educational technology is providing high quality education and educational support?
1: I think that's a great, great question. And it's something that's really top of mind. And one of the recommendations that we put is that there needs to be a collaborative approach. There's not a one size fits all technology. And we need to do work as a tech to make sure that we're building things that a work together. And if it really, if it's shown that it takes a virtual learning environment, it takes content and it takes collaboration then we need to kind of make sure that we're able to do that, right? Like that there are ways to work together that are not prohibitively difficult yeah. for systems, schools, and and, and teachers. Mm. That's one. And I think that's an opportunity for us to come together. Like, you know, you don't have to we don't have to have the one size fits all because this like a class, like school is a you know, hundred rooms, right? Of different purposes there and and different constructions and different uses is that I don't know if there's any need to create the one-size-fits-all because I think the contexts are so different. Probably is best to really focus on the things you do really well yeah, and to get really good at those because there's a lot of improvement that can happen across, I think, almost all technologies. Present company, myself as well, right? Yeah, of course. The work that we do. The, The second thing is I think that it should be something where the educators are foremost in the conversation. I think that there are a lot of ed tech companies that really maybe are more tech companies. So don't take account the teacher experience as much as they maybe should at the student experience.
0: How just to, that's a really, really, really good statement. What would you prefer educational technology companies or educational technology providers, whatever way you want to describe them? How, how should they be labeled, do you think? If, if not tech companies, do you think it should be more educational providers or educational technology providers or, or how, how would you prefer that they're described and defined
1: <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting it's probably the most controversial thing I could say, right
0: well I think you know on, on the back of what we're talking about, this current situation has um, provided huge opportunities and so it's it's probably a very important point to ensure that we are looking at the companies that are providing educational tools and support to teachers and students and ensuring that they see themselves in the right, right. light.
1: Uh, what I'd say is for ed tech, what, I, what I'd like to see is education companies that work with technology. And the, re- the reason why I say that is that, and this is something that I said in one of the webinars last week, is that technology companies have been doing amazing things yeah. in advertising in finances in you know, kind of the, the bigger, the bigger money makers, right? We use machine learning, you know, we, we, we work really hard to disrupt, right? Uber. And I think what's, what's happening and, and is that in a lot of cases, we have technology companies that are doing education that maybe don't have as much knowledge about how schools work, what teachers need, what students need to be able to really get in and, and, and make massive change. And so I think that's one. And then I think that we have, on the other end, we have education companies that don't have the technical proficiency do the big things, right? To make mm-hmm. the big leaps, to, to to do the things that are that are radical, right? Not that that's always necessary, but I do think that it, you know to create change, you have to have those you, big moments help, right? Yes. And so I think that right now, what what I would like to see more of is where we have those technical companies that do education take. As much time as possible to become experts on teaching and learning. And they're talking to teachers all the time, they're talking to students all the time, they're talking to school leaders all the time, that they're in they're in classrooms, that they are making that their primary, they're taking this opportunity to to learn as much as possible and to make something better. And then I would love to see on the other end that those that are educators that have great ideas have a more opportunity to, to, to make those. Uh, impactful by finding the right partners or, or getting the right support to do the technologically intense things, right? We we'll get kind of on the, a little line like when you look at the way that tech companies are capitalized, the way they're funded, you don't have a tech co founder, it's really hard to get funding. And you have a lot of educators that don't have tech backgrounds. Yeah. And it can be very hard to find a co-founder <laughs> and very hard to find someone that that has the same kind of interest in it. This is a big question, but I do think that there's an opportunity here for people to come together... And see this as a time for innovation, because I think that distance education is never going to be an opportunity where we can't think about it. Like it can't be a nice to have like an online learning platform or the ability to shift quickly. Like we're never going to be able to say, oh, no, we didn't know. It's always going to have to be something that is prepared for. And that means we have to do a lot better by our schools and our teachers to provide something that works.
0: Amanda, that was an incredible answer. Thank you. And <laughs> I, I, I know that it is a, it was a very loaded question.
1: You don't get me any trouble, but no, no,
0: I I really appreciate the transparency in that answer. And I think you know, we we have a duty to talk openly about the responsibilities of anybody, companies or otherwise, who are making claims about educational value and outcomes and provision. And I'm confident in in the ones that I know of, and of course uh, the ones that I've experienced that I think most have the right intent. And I just think it's a great time now for, as you said, collaboration where tech companies can become more educational companies and educational companies can become more tech companies and we get the best of both worlds working in harmony with what teachers and students need. Yeah.
1: It's an, it's an opportunity.
0: Yeah, Exactly. It's an opportunity and it's a discussion that, you know, we, we probably won't resolve right here, but it's, yeah. it's important to, to keep it going and Absolutely. to make sure it's lively and, and open and, and, uh, and honest. Thank you so much for that. I, I'm very conscious of your time, but I have a couple more questions. I hope you don't mind. No worries. So what are your conclusions about the state of education right now? I mean, we've talked about the research and we didn't get into all of it. And by the way, we will have links in the show notes for listeners so they can go out and look at, uh, at that in detail. But in general, through this experience, how do we move forward and, and transition back into the classrooms not just around support and tools, but also looking at the potential paradigm shift that might have to happen with education.
1: It's a really fascinating question because it is something where, you know, we got some questions in the webinar. Are we going to have to take some of these things back to the classroom with us? Is teaching going to change? Is it necessary to keep up these kind of online learning aspects, right? And we also see in some cases, like some schools that had already shifted to online learning and teams and collaboration, that this has been a very easy transition. And so it is a question as to what can come back with us, what innovations or what supports actually are beneficial to the most students possible. And I mean that in my mind, the things that come back have to to help the most students, right? Yeah. And, And also provide In other cases, because it has to be equities, it helps most students, but also provides more support to some. That makes sense. It's kind of, it's kind of a, sounds like two opposite things, but I think they kind of play together, right? You want to, you want to hit the bell curve, but then you also want to find equitable approaches and strategies. Yeah. And so in this case, I think that there is a question as to how to integrate technology effectively to support students in the day-to-day without creating a real difficult situation for teachers parents and students so that makes sense
0: yeah yeah so
1: is there a way to do that without doubling preparation time is there a way to do that without creating an, an enormous administrative burden and i think that that is a real question for us right now And i think that's a place that EdTech should kind of stand up right like there are other places for us to ease some of those issues um if there are single features that are really really useful is that something that we can pull apart right yeah. Are there ways in which two organizations can work together to do some of the magic on the back end to create a seamless integration for a school where it feels like the same thing, even though it is different? That to me is a really important piece.
0: So there's lots, lots to go away and think about. And I like this solution based approach that the ed tech industry can take here. So I will... Wrap up with a few short questions. <laughs> Please don't feel any pressure in answering these. Just we ask all our guests a few things just to, to celebrate their own uniqueness, their own unique lives and, and maybe share some of their wisdom. Don't feel any pressure if you, if you can't answer anything. That's fine. Uh, are you ready to go? Just a few quick ones. OK, let's, let's do it. OK, so are there any books or resources you feel would benefit teachers as they navigate these uncertain times?
1: What I would say is that go to the people you trust. Um, so if you have a really trusted blogger or organization or thought leader, I would go to them right now. I would try to limit probably anything too new because everything we have going on, I you know, I like really practical things. And I think for us, what we've done is just tried to pull apart the really practical things from like evidence for learning, even some of the work that we're doing just to try to create these like little snippets of what you can do next, because I think that's probably all we have the capacity for right now.
0: Yeah, agreed. Thank you. Um, Do you have a going to work soundtrack or getting motivated soundtrack or music suggestion?
1: Well, I have one playlist that I've had since like 2012, which is really embarrassing. (laughs) And it it was called workout and it was misspelled for like five years. (laughs) I use that, but I, 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 you know, some pump up music. I I like Lizzo. Um, so I would say, you know, if you want to seize the day, listen to some Lizzo.
0: Awesome. Good recommendation. If, um, this is, this sounds like a huge question, but please, it can be a small answer. That's no problem. But if you could introduce one new policy to apply to all schools, I guess in the context of, of what we're going through right now, what would it be and why? Um,
1: I think the policy would be that's a really hard one. I'm gonna I'm gonna punt and I'm to have two because I think one is just underlying. I think access to, to reliable technology, if we're gonna be going to this again, is incredibly important. Yeah, Australia, uh, New Zealand are we already have our issues with infrastructure, but I think that that's incredibly important for for students to be able to to do this work going forward. I think it's just a non negotiable. And then the second I think is celebrate what works and provide recognition of all of the, the hard work and the, the trying that's happening right now. And I think that if we could do that, if, every, if everyone could stop for a moment and say, this has been crazy and like you guys are doing your best and we're, we're here for you and we're going to try to make this better going forward, I think it wouldn't take much time and it can have an enormous impact.
0: I love it. Are there any quotes that you often think about or use in your work or like, I mean, it doesn't have to be quotes, any kind of sentiment or value that you think of consistently to get you through your work.
1: Well, I think when I look at the values for our organization, I think the two things I always think about are like our kindness and accountability. And so the idea of kindness to yourself and others is an idea of accountability to yourself and others. If you can always try to, to listen and, and, take a moment and understand that like people are trying their best, but at the same time, you can, you, you can try your best. If that makes sense and yeah. you can expect them to try your best, that those two things I think create a really positive structure.
0: Oh, wonderful. Uh, yeah. I think we all need to think about that. <laughs> That's a really good advice. Is there any, any particular, part of your day or activity in your day that you rely on just to keep your energy levels up and your optimism up and your motivation going?
1: I'll say two things. One, I've been doing a weekly walk with one of our co-founders, Leo, who's also my partner and uh, I won't say crime, but partner in the business. Yeah. And we spend, we do, we do two laps of the Garden every Sunday. And I think that's beautiful. Cool. Um, the second is baking. I think everyone like we're gonna have the biggest bake off when my team gets back together. It's kind of <laughs> like baking has been like the national catharsis, maybe the international oh,
0: catharsis. You know, there uh, honestly, I've been so inspired by a couple of things. Like the amount of baking going on internationally is incredible. Also, <laughs> the amount of people who are singing and sharing music is incredible. Right. And then there's then there's a whole plethora of other of other creative talents that people have suddenly decided. Now is the time to get on the stage and express themselves, and that has been a huge positive to all of this.
1: Yeah, it's 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 really good to see that we're finding these ways to to connect, right? And it, but it also shows us like we just got we we, we want to figure out what's better because we talked. I think you've talked about like the connected generation, right? Everyone has their phones. Yeah. But then if you take it out of their phone, everyone is lost.
0: <laughs> I know. Yeah.
1: It's like, I was really good when it was texting, right? Like it was really good when it was like a FaceTime or I'm taking an Instagram. But now that I have to use like a laptop and multiple platforms and, you know, I have to see myself on Zoom. You know, like it's just, it's insane how we thought we were really digitally more capable. And then you're like, okay, now it's, it's, it's not physical and it's not a, it's not a smartphone. And everyone's yeah. like, oh no.
0: Yeah. It's incredible. Um, Thank you so much, Amanda. You've been a joy to talk to. I really appreciate the insight that you've brought to this discussion, not just based on the research that you've done, which I think is so valuable. And, I, and I'm and i personally so grateful. I know that a lot of the educators who will receive and look at that research and, and use it as inspiration will be incredibly grateful as well. So thank you on behalf of them and on behalf of myself and also on behalf of um, EP. You know, it's it's awesome to have pivot as as a partner in what we do and based on what you said about moving forward in education technology collaboration is so important like together we can achieve a lot more than being alone in, in our endeavors is there any any uh, particular place you would like people to contact you or get in touch i know how busy you are so i don't want to open any floodgates or anything yeah. but if you would invite any questions or inquiries how might people best uh,
1: if, I mean, what I would say is always connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm just Amanda Bickerstaff. Um, we can connect there. Love to know who you are a little bit. So that's a great way to do that. If you have a question, you can email me. Also, if you're just interested in learning more about EP, I have a, I'm, excuse me, Pivot. I have a great team. So you can you can reach out and I can get you to the right place. Um, you know, we, we want to take time for... For teachers and so, and school leaders, so always happy to have that conversation. And I hope that I was, uh, you know, that it wasn't too long winded or took you in too many places. Uh, it was great to talk to you and exciting to, to be able to share these perspectives.
0: Yeah, yeah, likewise. And and maybe, hopefully, we, we can do it again sometime. There's, there's so much more we could talk about, I'm sure.
1: I, I, I feel like we should probably also just one day we'll get a coffee yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and chat about education and, and the world. Yeah,
0: for sure. Thank you for listening. If you haven't already hit that subscribe button on your podcast service of choice. And of course, your ratings and reviews are hugely appreciated. Also consider joining our LinkedIn group teaching and learning in a digital age, we post regular articles and podcast updates on there and would love to interact with you. Thanks to Paula Prouse, our amazing producer and Yasmin Nowak for her wonderful editing. Until next time, stay happy and keep learning.